We are in our message series on the life of Jesus. We're going through all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in chronological order to discover who Jesus really was, what he really said, and what he really did. It's our goal to know him and his word for ourselves firsthand. Last week, we dived deep into the subject of forgiveness as Jesus taught a classic parable about a man who was forgiven a debt of over four and a half billion dollars in the equivalent economics of today, but refused to forgive his fellow servant a debt of just $8,200. If you missed that message, I encourage you to go and listen to it online. It's going to change the way you view forgiveness for the rest of your life. The teaching of Jesus is so powerful in that area. This week, we're going to be reminded about the way much of Jesus' own family viewed him during his earthly ministry, and we're going to be challenged by the urgency of following Jesus. This is one of those messages that doesn't have a big cohesive theme or a catchy one-liner to help you remember it. We're going to be going through several things, and we're going to trust that the Holy Spirit is simply going to illuminate the one point you most need to hear this morning. So you be praying for that as I open the Word of God and we dive into it together today. Have you ever known that there was something important you need to do, but you just kept putting it off? It's been well said that the day most people start working out and taking care of themselves is tomorrow. It's always tomorrow. We tell ourselves, I'll take care of it soon, or my personal favorite, maybe it'll just fix itself if I do nothing and leave it alone. I'm still waiting for the first time that actually works, but I seem to keep trying it. Some things are just urgent. And today Jesus is going to talk to us about what is most urgent. At this point in the life of Jesus, we're about six months away from the cross. It's coming up fast. In verse two of our text today, it says this, now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. The feast of tabernacles was one of the feasts the Lord commanded Israel to celebrate way back in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy. It's known as one of the seven feasts of Moses because God gave Moses these instructions to give to the people of Israel. It was also one of three feasts where the law required or highly encouraged all able-bodied Jewish men to make the pilgrimage to the temple in Jerusalem. Most historians tell us if you lived within about a 50-mile radius, it was mandatory that you go to Jerusalem if you were physically able. If you lived further away, it was sort of expected. The Feast of Tabernacles was a time when the Lord wanted Israel to remember how he had provided and cared for them during the time between their fleeing Egypt, being freed from slavery in Egypt, and their arrival in the promised land, a place of freedom. So in between those two places, in between Egypt and the promised land, was this time period of around 40 years known as the Wilderness Wanderings. And during the Feast of Tabernacles, which is known as Sukkot in the Hebrew, the Lord commanded that for seven days, for a full week, they remember how he had taken care of them while they were in the wilderness wanderings. And so each family, under the Lord's instructions, would make a booth, a lean-to, a temporary structure out of leaves and branches on the roof of their house. And the family would eat and sleep in that structure for the week of the feast. 
Historians tell us it was the most popular of the seven feasts of Moses, and you can imagine why. I mean, kids would have loved this. You're basically building a treehouse on top of your house, and then the whole family is living there for a week. That'd be awesome if you were a kid. And it's actually something that many Jews still practice to this day. They don't sleep in their Sukkot booths, but they do eat their meals in them. People do this on their patios, on their porches, even in apartment complexes in Israel to this day. And if you Google it, you'll actually find modern day rabbis who have published detailed instructions on how to build a a kosher, a legit Sukkot booth, the kinds of wood you're allowed to use, how it has to be arranged, how you can connect the pieces of wood, all that stuff. There are recommendations from even modern-day Jewish rabbis on how that should be done. We've dived into the subject of the Jewish feasts in the past. We don't have time to do so in this message, but I highly encourage you to study the seven feasts of Moses on your own. All of our theology, all of our doctrine, pretty much everything we believe as Christians is wrapped up symbolically in the seven feasts of Moses. Every feast has a meaning. It commemorates something that has already taken place, and every feast has a second prophetic meaning. In other words, it also looks ahead to something that will take place in the future. All of the spring feasts have already had their prophetic fulfillment accomplished in and through the first coming of Christ, his earthly ministry that we read about in the Gospels. All of the fall feasts will have their prophetic fulfillment around the second coming of Christ, the events described in the book of Revelation. The three mandatory feasts, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles, lay out the cross, the church, and the second coming prophetically. So I commend to you the study of the seven feasts of Moses. It will strengthen your understanding of the narrative of the whole Bible, and it will really help you understand the way biblical prophecy and biblically prophetic patterns work. Let's continue in verse three. Speaking of Jesus, it says, his brothers therefore said to him, depart from here, they're in northern Israel and Galilee at this moment, and go into Judea. Judea is southern Israel where Jerusalem is, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly, If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And then underline verse five, for even his brothers did not believe in him. Isn't that interesting? It's sort of an inevitable outcome when you think about it. Can you imagine your brother or sister or your sibling one day just saying, hey, uh, I've been meaning to tell you, I'm the son of God. You would probably be the most difficult person to convince because you would know he's family. He's family. And what the brothers are doing here is basically being brothers. They're saying, go on, Jesus. Go show Jerusalem what you can do. Everyone's there for Sukkot. What a perfect time to present yourself as the son of God. The gist was, we're up here in the sticks in a small village in Galilee. If you're really the son of God, then go announce it in the big city. They're being totally facetious. They're displaying the same scoffing heart that we see in most of the scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees. It's the heart that says, if you're really God, then do a great trick, perform a miracle, fly, do something amazing. And Jesus never pandered to that. He wasn't trying to impress anybody. He wasn't trying to gain any man's approval. He cared only about the approval of his Father in heaven. 
It may surprise you to learn that sometimes siblings will intentionally try to get their siblings into trouble. It's true. I know it's unbelievable. But Jesus' brothers knew that he would get into trouble if he went down to Jerusalem. But why would they want to get him into trouble? Well, maybe they didn't really like him. Because he literally never did anything wrong. And surprisingly, some people don't like that. Jesus' room was always clean. Whenever they would do something really stupid and rebellious, Jesus wouldn't be a part of it. And as they're getting smacked by mom or dad, you can imagine Jesus is there possibly saying, I told you guys it was a bad idea. And this may have generated a great deal of animosity toward Jesus among some of his siblings. But I love that this is in the Bible. And the reason I believe this is recorded in the Bible is because of the incredible testimony of the brothers of Jesus after his death and resurrection. In Mark 3.21, the Bible tells us they thought Jesus was, quote, out of his mind. And in Matthew 12, they actually try to talk him out of his ministry. Just stop doing what you're doing. But something happened between this moment when they're making fun of him for claiming to be the Messiah and about seven months into the future from this time when Jesus has risen from the dead. You see, the brothers of Jesus will change from scoffing and mocking unbelievers to hardcore believers who were willing to, and ultimately did, die for their message and testimony that Jesus had risen from the dead and was indeed the Son of God, the Messiah. Well, what happened? What drove that change? Jesus really was, and Jesus really is the Son of God. And he really did die and rise from the dead. And he really did appear to his disciples and family members after his death in a way that none of them could deny, even when faced with a torturous death. At this moment, they were blind, but soon they would see. I've often wondered, how did nobody notice that Jesus was perfect? I mean, you'd think someone would pick up on that. Hey, I've noticed that you know, Bob never really sins. I'd expect someone to notice. Wouldn't you notice if you grew up with a brother who never made fun of you, who never hit you, never called you a name? He was a nice brother all the time. And yet his brothers didn't believe in him. Jesus's half-brother, Jude, would later write the book in the New Testament that bears his name. As would Jesus's other half-brother, James, and both would be key leaders in the early church. But neither of them became believers until after Jesus was crucified and rose from the dead. And I think there's a lesson buried in those facts. It's easy to think that if we're just really, really, really nice to people, our niceness will ultimately win them to Jesus. Church, Jesus was the nicest person who ever lived. Really, he was perfect. He was always kind, always loving. But his brothers didn't believe in him. When the Holy Spirit calls upon us to share the gospel with somebody, we should never think that being nice to them is an effective substitute. It's not. There is no substitute for the death and resurrection and saving power of Jesus. When the Holy Spirit says, just be kind to them, then be kind to them. But when the Holy Spirit says, share the gospel with them, then man, share the gospel. There is no substitute. The brothers of Jesus prove that. 
Last point on these verses. Sometimes we wonder why our families don't see what the Lord is doing in our lives. Maybe you're wondering, why don't they see the change in me? Why don't they see the joy and the peace and what God is doing in my life? Just remember, the brothers of Jesus Christ didn't recognize what God was doing in his life. They had the Son of God right under their noses and they missed it for most of his life. So maybe it's not that surprising that sometimes our families can be a little bit slow to recognize what God is doing in our lives. Keep the faith. Keep the faith. God is working on your unbelieving family members. I promise. Verse 6, then Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come. I want you to underline that. My time has not yet come. Jesus is not saying that it's not his time to go to Jerusalem for Sukkot. He's saying that it's not his time to fully announce himself as the Messiah in Jerusalem. Jesus kept the law perfectly. So he has to go to Jerusalem for Sukkot, and he will, as we'll see later. But this is not the time for Jesus to announce himself in Jerusalem as the Messiah. Why? Because the religious leaders in Jerusalem want to murder him. When people want to murder you in a specific place, that's a really good reason not to go to that place. And in fact, it was an open secret. Pretty much everyone in the region of Judea and a lot of people throughout Israel knew that they wanted to kill Jesus down in Jerusalem. Jesus is going to do everything on his timing, which is ultimately his father's timing. Even when we reach the night of his betrayal, we'll find that Judas didn't plan on betraying Jesus the night of the Last Supper. Jesus forced his hand. He said, what you're about to do, do quickly. Because Jesus and the Father were in full control of every detail. Jesus is not operating on his family's timeline. He is not operating on the people's timeline. And he's not operating on the timeline of the religious leaders. He and his Father are in full control of his timeline. We know that the father had told Jesus there was a specific day that he was to ride into Jerusalem and announce himself as the Messiah. That day would be the day we today call Palm Sunday. That day would be his time because it would fulfill to the day the prophecy of Daniel 9.25. So why did the religious leaders in Jerusalem want to kill Jesus? Well, earlier in his ministry, possibly around a year and a half ago, Jesus was in Jerusalem for another of the feasts, and he went into the temple. This is written about in John 2. And he didn't like what he saw. He saw tons of men ripping off worshipers in collusion with the religious leaders. They were jacking up the price of the animals that would be used to make sacrifices in the temple and through various schemes, ripping off the people who were coming there to worship. This angered Jesus, so he starts turning over tables, driving the animals out of the temple and makes a whip out of rope and gets all the merchants and crooked people out of there. And That doesn't really win you a lot of friends with the leaders of that specific temple. Then after that, another time when Jesus was in Jerusalem in John 5, we read that he healed a lame man, a man who couldn't walk at the pool of Bethesda. The guy hasn't walked for years and years and years. He leaves his interaction with Jesus walking with his mat rolled under his arm. And the religious leaders are offended that Jesus has healed this man on the Sabbath because nobody's supposed to do any type of work on the Sabbath, apparently including healing. 
The Bible tells us this, for this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things, because he had healed the lame man on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father has been working until now. In other words, my father works on the Sabbath and I have been working. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. If anyone ever tells you that Jesus never claimed to be the son of God, they have never read the gospel, specifically the gospel of John. And a helpful hint is to know that anytime the Pharisees are mad about something, they're giving us a clue that Jesus has made some type of claim, which they find especially grievous. Most of the time, Jesus has implied that he is the son of God or he is God in the flesh, and that's why they're mad at him. If Jesus never claimed to be God, you have to answer the question, then why did they kill him? Why are the Jewish religious leaders so mad at him? From that time on, the Jewish religious leadership had desired to and tried to kill Jesus. For the feast of Sukkot, as with the feasts of Passover and Pentecost, All of the able-bodied Jewish men from a village or town, possibly with their wives and children, would all generally travel together in a single caravan from their village to Jerusalem. This was for safety reasons, practical reasons, fun reasons. So the Jewish authorities in Judea would have been keeping an eye on these arriving caravans, waiting for the one to arrive from Jesus' town up in Galilee. And then they would have arrested him and tried to kill him. Jesus couldn't be in that caravan for obvious reasons. So he's got to come up with a different solution to keep the law and get to Jerusalem for Sukkot. And we're going to see in a couple of verses from now how he does that. Jesus keeps talking with his brothers and he says, It's not my time, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it, underline, hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. Whoa, whoa, whoa. We all know that Jesus would never judge anyone, right? I mean, that's what the world is always telling us. Jesus would never judge anyone and everyone loved Jesus. And yet here is Jesus himself telling his brothers that the world hates him because he testifies, quote, its works are evil. In other words, the reason the world hated Jesus, the reason the world would ultimately crucify Jesus is because Jesus judged the world. He called sin, sin, and he called on people to repent. If Jesus didn't judge the sin of the world, then he couldn't die for the sin of the world. He can't die for sin if he's saying, no, it's not really sin, it's not a problem. The first step is there has to be the recognition that yes, there is sin and it needs to be dealt with. And thank God, Jesus judged the sin of the world, declared it to be sin, and then he died for that sin. Do you remember in our last study, when we read Paul the Apostle telling us that we're not to judge those outside the church? What was the reason that we weren't supposed to do that? It was because who judges those outside the church? The Lord. He does. Jesus judged sin in his teachings, and most people hated him for it. Back in John chapter 3, we read this incredible statement from the Apostle John. He said, and this is the condemnation, you can underline condemnation on your outlines if you want, that the light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. 
Don't ever forget that this is what the Bible says. This is what Jesus says. The ultimate reason people don't receive Jesus is because they prefer their sin. So write this down. To love Jesus is to agree with his judgment of our sin. To love Jesus is to agree with his judgment of our sin. You can't claim to love Jesus and at the same time call him a liar. You know, we all struggle with sin. When you become a believer, it's not like you don't struggle with sin anymore. But what's different is the believer agrees with God that, yes, it is sin that I'm struggling with. And because we agree with God, we're able to be forgiven. The person who can't be forgiven is the person who won't admit that they're in sin, who won't admit that they're a sinner who needs help. I don't think it's sin. It's just a lifestyle. It's just the way I choose to live. To love Jesus means you have to agree with his judgment of our sin. You may have noticed that Jesus is flat out telling us that his brothers are not believers at this time. That's what he's implying when he says the world cannot hate you. He's saying you're of the world, so you fit right in. I'm not of this world, and the world hates me for that. And that is why the world will accommodate every other religion but have a different standard for Christianity. That's why it's okay to make a sculpture or a piece of art out of feces that depicts Jesus, but you could never do that about Allah or Buddha or Krishna. There's a different standard. The world hates Jesus. So if you love Jesus, you shouldn't be surprised if you run into some tension with the world around you. Some believers will experience just a little taste of that reality. Here in Canada, we've had it pretty easy, let's be honest. But some believers will lose their lives because of that reality. If they didn't like Jesus, they probably won't always like you or me. And we need to be okay with that. When we reach John 15, Jesus will speak to his disciples as believers and he will tell them, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Back to John 7, Jesus keeps talking in verse 8, and he says to them, you go up to this feast. Just as a side note, wherever you were located geographically, Jews always referred to Jerusalem as up. So even if you had to go south to get to Jerusalem, you were going up to Jerusalem because it was the high place, the home of the temple, the highest place of worship for the Jew. Jesus says to them, I am not yet going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. But when he had said these things, he remained in Galilee. When his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were, in secret. Because of the very real danger to his life and because it was not yet fully his time to be announced as Messiah, Jesus would still obey the Old Testament law, go to Jerusalem for Sukkot, but he would do so discreetly, in secret. I'm going to ask you at this point to flip over to Luke 9, and we're going to learn about some things that happened on his way toward Jerusalem. In Luke chapter 9, verse 51, it says, Now it came to pass, when the time had come for him to be received up, that, underline, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. Never forget that Jesus was aware of his mission before he even began his ministry. What would happen in Jerusalem, his arrest, his beating and crucifixion, was not an unfortunate turn of events or an accident. 
It was the plan from before the world was made, and Jesus was in on that plan. We see that in Jesus' control of his own destiny and timeline, and it's why Jesus said of his life, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down myself. Each of us has to make the same choice. The choice to follow Jesus is the choice not to set one's face toward Jerusalem, but to set one's face toward heaven and Jesus. And I want us to notice that Jesus had made up his mind to obey his father all the way to death, long before the moment came. Each Christian must make the same choice, the choice to follow Jesus, whatever the cost. The time to decide is not when the moment comes. The time to decide is long before the moment of difficulty comes. That's why Jesus said, For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it? The choice to follow Jesus is the choice to follow Jesus no matter the cost. Make a note of this. The decision to follow Jesus through any trial must be made before the trial arrives. The decision to follow Jesus through any trial must be made before the trial arrives. Let's continue. Verse 52. Jesus sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him. Underline this word, because. Because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. As Jesus makes his way toward Jerusalem for the last time, He is most likely traveling with an entourage of at least 50 people, disciples of his. So Jesus needs to send some of those disciples ahead of him to find places for them to stay and eat, etc. By this point in his ministry, pretty much everyone in Israel has heard of Jesus. His reputation precedes him. And we know that by this time, he's already ministered powerfully in other Samaritan villages. You remember the woman at the well that was a village in Samaria, And he was asked to stay with them several days and minister to them, and he did. But this Samaritan village won't receive him. And I had you underline the word because, because it tells us why they wouldn't welcome Jesus. It says, because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. He was now on his way to die in Jerusalem for the sins of the world. We know that the disciples didn't really comprehend that Jesus was going to literally die in Jerusalem. Jesus had told them this in a few different ways, but as we will see from their reactions in the coming months of this journey, as we will see from their reactions when the crucifixion takes place, it hadn't really sunk in. They didn't really think it was actually going to happen. They're shocked when it happens. So it seems unlikely that the disciples whom Jesus sent out in advance were telling the Samaritans in this village, hey, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to die for your sins. We also know that there was intense animosity between the Jews and Samaritans for various reasons that we don't have time to get into right now. They were ethnic and cultural enemies. If you were Jewish, you worshiped at the temple in Jerusalem. If you were Samaritan, you worshiped on Mount Gerizim, which was located in Samaria. Apparently, once the disciples shared with the Samaritans in this village that Jesus was headed to Jerusalem, they wanted nothing to do with him. They perceived this as Jesus siding with the Jews, and they wanted someone who would side with the Samaritans. They were more interested in their cultural war than their need to be saved from sin. They wanted a cultural savior, not a spiritual savior. 
And this is a phenomenon we observe even today. There will always be people who will be interested in Jesus as long as he is on their side, as long as he can forward their agenda or be used to champion their cause. But if they find out that Jesus is more interested in saving them from their sin, well, then they refuse to receive him. This is on your outline. Jesus did not come to the earth to join our side. He came to make a way for us to join his side. He did not come to the earth to join our side. He came to make a way for us to join his side. We are on the side of death. Jesus didn't come so that he could move now to the side of death. He came so that he could go to that side and bring us over to his side, the side of life. But this village had no interest in that. They were looking for a cultural Messiah, a champion for the Samaritan cause. I love this next part because now we get to see the blessed, peacemaking, saintly disciples of Jesus respond to this rejection. In light of everything Jesus has taught them, they're going to give us a, a master class here, I'm sure, in, in how to handle rejection. Verse 54, and when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? Which is why to this day we Christians call down fire from heaven upon our enemies. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. These guys are thugs for Jesus. They're like mafia. They're like, yo, Jesus, you want we should uh, make this village disappear? No bodies, you know, Elijah style. They got no compassion. They're still pretty obviously racist towards Samaritans. They have no concept of mercy or their own sinfulness. They're still clearly violently legalistic and judgmental. And if you take a look, you'll notice that just two verses earlier in this chapter, these same disciples had chastised a man who was casting out demons, successfully, I might add, in the name of Jesus, because that man wasn't, in their mind, an official part of their crew. And Jesus told them, just stop it. Stop it. That's not how the kingdom works. The disciples clearly still got a sinful satisfaction out of judging and condemning others. Jesus, on the other hand, is compassionate. That doesn't mean Jesus is cool with our sin or anyone else's. It means that if there's even the faintest chance that a person will repent and turn to him, Jesus doesn't give up on a person. The prophet Isaiah wrote prophetically about the heart of Jesus when he wrote this, a bruised reed he will not break and smoking flax he will not quench. If a person is already broken, Jesus won't stomp on them and kill them for good. If a person is barely smoldering, just lightly smoking where they should be on fire, just barely alive, Jesus won't throw a bucket of water on them to put them out completely. He'll pick them up, breathe on that little bit that's still alive, and never stop working to fan that flame back into life. He's a Messiah who understands our frailty because he has put on this fragile human form and walked many more than a mile in our shoes. This also cracks me up because it's how we grow as believers. So notice that the faith of the disciples has apparently really grown. Man, their faith is through the roof. They really believe they have the ability to call down fire from heaven on their enemies. They've got strong faith. That's a good thing. Wanting to use that faith to burn someone to death for not being welcoming to you? That's not a good thing. We might need to tweak that attitude a little bit. It still needs some work. And that encourages me. 
I haven't arrived yet. You haven't arrived yet. Just like the disciples were still works in progress. And I thank God for his grace and the example of the disciples. Verse 55, but he, Jesus, turned and rebuked them and said, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. If you're a parent, then you know what Jesus was feeling in this moment. It's that feeling of frustration when it seems like your kids just aren't getting it. I can't believe that Jesus doesn't just lose it on the disciples and say, have you been listening to anything I've been saying for the past two and a half years? Have you seriously not figured out yet? I'm here to save people. Have you ever seen me kill anybody because they wouldn't listen to me? Don't miss this. When Jesus says, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of, he's telling them that the heart that desires anyone to experience destruction is not the heart of heaven, but the heart of hell. The heart of heaven is Isaiah 45, 22. Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. And I can't help myself from pointing this out. Jesus doesn't say, yeah, go for it. They're predestined to not believe anyway. Instead, Jesus chastised his disciples and told them that they did not have the heart of heaven for people. That was my rant against some other people. This is my rant against myself and perhaps a warning for us. We live in interesting times, to say the least. The world, for the most part, seems to be at war with God's ways and his word. Israel is under attack from the Palestinians. The Middle East is under attack from ISIS and militant Islam. Iran is trying to wipe Israel off the face of the earth, and Christianity is increasingly frowned upon in first world countries. It's considered out of step with cultural values today. It's very easy for us to say, smite them, Lord. Just wipe ISIS, wipe Iran, wipe all the anti-God politicians and lobbyists and political groups off the face of the earth. You got to have a spare lightning bolt lying around somewhere, one or two or a couple of thousand. Why can't you use them? Take care of the problem. And in doing so, we forget that every single day, there are people on this planet who move from being enemies of God to becoming children of God. They move from being our enemies to becoming our brothers and sisters. Just think of the life story of the Apostle Paul. There must have been some believers who were praying, Lord, would you just smite Saul? How many Christians are you going to let him throw in prison? How many are you going to let him have killed before you do something? When Jesus asked us to pray for our enemies, he didn't mean pray that they'd be destroyed. He meant pray that they would repent and be welcomed into the family of God. This is what Jesus commanded us to do. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Let's make sure, and I'm speaking to myself here a lot, that we always have the heart of heaven, even for our worst enemies. Then it says they went to another village. Isn't it amazing that John, seen here as one of the sons of thunder, desiring to obliterate people with fire from heaven, would go down in history as the apostle of love? Well, what changed? We know Jesus got a hold of him. But yet at this point, he's been hanging with Jesus in the flesh for two and a half years. And this encourages me as well. 
maybe like me, you're, you're not naturally compassionate or caring. Full disclosure, I'm not naturally that way. But you'll change as you walk with Jesus. It may not happen quickly. It may not happen as fast as you or others think it should, but it will happen. The Holy Spirit is working on you and I right now, and he's in it for the long haul. If you love Jesus, then you are becoming someone else. You are becoming like Jesus. Maybe very, very slowly and maybe with too much resistance, but it's happening. Verse 57. Now it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Perhaps seeing all the miracles, hearing all the wise teachings, watching the crowd hang on every word, this man thought, I gotta be a part of this. This is awesome. It was an emotional decision. But Jesus responds by essentially telling the man, you're not seeing the life behind all these moments. You're not seeing the hours of prayer. You're not seeing the villages where I go and they don't want to hear a word I have to say. You're not seeing me visit my own hometown and nobody believes in me. You're not seeing the villages where they try to throw me off a cliff or stone me to death. You're not seeing any of those sacrifices. You're not seeing the cost. So let me ask you, what if following me is uncomfortable? What if it doesn't come with all the material comforts you love so much, what if following me makes you unsuccessful from a material standpoint? And as Jesus moves on, it's implied that this man didn't follow him after this interaction. Maybe later on in his life he did, but we just don't know. So write this down. Following Jesus is not an emotional decision. Following Jesus is not an emotional decision. Side note here, some people use this verse to claim that Jesus was impoverished and homeless. That was not the case. Jesus had a home, most likely up in Galilee, but he was simply away from his home at this time. Jesus is telling this man, sometimes I'm comfortable and at my own home, but sometimes I'm not comfortable. Sometimes the father asks me to leave the comforts of home and go somewhere else that's not comfortable. Are you ready to live that way? Coming and going from comfort as the Lord asks you to? Because that's how I live. In Mark 10, Jesus talks with his disciples about having enough when they've been asked to leave everything. And this is how he encourages them. He says, so Jesus answered and said, assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake in the gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. Jesus is telling them, Everything I ask you to leave, even if I ask you to leave family, I'm going to give you spiritual new brothers and sisters in this life. I'm going to provide for you financially. I'm going to provide for you relationally. Even while you're being persecuted, I'm still going to meet all your needs, emotional as well as physical, not just eternal rewards, but I'm going to meet your needs in this life, even in the midst of persecution. 
Not only that, but in Mark 6, Jesus is going about the work of feeding the 5,000, a story many of you are familiar with, and we know that the 5,000 just refers to the men. So with the women and children there, we're looking at a crowd of 20 to 25,000 people. The Bible records the disciples telling Jesus, send them away, send the crowd away, that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. But he, Jesus, answered and said to them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? And Bible scholars tell us that the disciples aren't asking where they're going to get the money. They're not saying the idea of 200 denarii worth of bread is ridiculous because of how much it costs. They're saying it's ridiculous because there's nowhere they can go that has that much bread. There's nowhere that's making that much bread at this time. So they can't go and buy thousands and thousands of loaves of bread. The 200 denarii, the 200 days worth of wages is apparently not the problem. So Jesus's ministry was adequately, even well funded. And then we learn in John 12 that Judas was skimming money from Jesus's ministry fund for pretty much the whole three years. That means there was enough money in Jesus's ministry fund for Judas to skim from it. If you've only got five apples and someone takes three, you're going to notice. So there had to be enough in there that Judas could skim from it and nobody noticed. Jesus never says, if you're going to follow me, then you need to be poor and homeless. He never says that. That's the poverty gospel. That's man's piety. And it's just as much a lie as the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel says God wants you to be rich. The poverty gospel says God wants you to be poor. But the gospel says God wants you to be like Jesus. And if you're going to follow Jesus, you need to be prepared for whatever the Lord decides is going to help you become more like Jesus and accomplish the purposes that he put you on the earth for, whether that's a bunch of money or not a lot or somewhere in between. God's the one who makes that decision out of his desire to use you and make you more like Jesus. Verse 59, then he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. This man is not actually saying that his father has just died. There's not a dead body at home. He's saying, Jesus, I'll be able to follow you after my father passes away at some point in the future. Because you see, that would be the time that this man would receive his inheritance. So what he's really saying is, Jesus, I am all in for following you as soon as I'm financially secure. That way I, I don't need to have faith to trust you for my finances and I won't be a burden on your ministry. He wants to eliminate faith from the equation. He wants to be financially secure so we won't have to wonder where his future income is going to come from. But the problem is that Jesus isn't calling him in the future. He's calling him right now. And there are some Christian financial systems out there that preach a message that says, focus your life on becoming financially independent and secure. Then you'll be able to serve Jesus full time without being a burden on the ministry. That's a wonderful idea, man. I say amen to that. What a great goal. With one exception, if Jesus is calling you to take a step of faith right now, then that calling trumps everything else, even whether or not it makes financial sense. So we see relationships and riches getting in the way of people following Jesus, and we're going to see that continue in these last couple of examples and these things are still enormous obstacles today that stop people from following Jesus. Many people want the peace, the love, and the happiness that Jesus seems to offer, but 
they're ultimately unwilling to pay the price of following Jesus. Following Jesus may mean some business practices have to change. You may have to change companies, even careers. You may have to let go of an unbelieving boyfriend or girlfriend or even a long-standing friendship that you're realizing is not moving you toward heaven. It might cost you riches. It might cost relationships. And like these two men, many people today tragically decide that the price of following Jesus is simply too high. Verse 60, Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. Write this down. Following Jesus is not a someday decision. The decision to follow Jesus doesn't belong on the calendar next to the decision to get yourself into good physical shape. It doesn't belong in the category of tomorrow or someday. That's not the way to approach Jesus. Verse 61, and another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but first let me go and bid them farewell who are at my house. This man isn't asking to go home and high five some people and give hugs. What he's saying is, Lord, let me first go home and ask for my family's permission. Make a note of this. Following Jesus doesn't wait for family approval. Here's the issue. When Jesus calls you, you don't respond with, Lord, let me first. It's kind of an oxymoron. You're saying Lord, which means master, and then you're going straight into let me first do what I want to do. Let me first take care of myself. Let me get my agenda completed. And then we can talk about me following you. You're like a man who's a marriage coward if you're doing that. What's a marriage coward? I know I'm going to tick off somebody who's listening to this, but a marriage coward is a man who won't fully commit to the woman he claims to love. And so he always has a reason to not get married. Well, first, let me finish school. Then four years later, it's, I've decided to go for my doctorate. Then it's, well, we don't have enough money for the ring you really want, or let's invest in getting to know each other. It's been 12 years. I know, but do we really want to rush something this important? Marriage cowards. Don't be a marriage coward with Jesus. A good woman doesn't deserve to be treated that way, and Jesus does not deserve to be treated that way. When Jesus calls you, don't respond with, Lord, let me first do this. Verse 62, but Jesus said to him, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Again, we see this issue of relationships. The decision to follow Jesus has to be made separate of anyone else. It's a commitment you make to him. Nobody can make the decision for you and nobody can make it with you. It's between you and him. And if you're waiting for someone's permission before you follow Jesus, then you're not really ready to follow Jesus. I was reminded as I was prepping this of the morning when I went out for breakfast with my now father-in-law and asked him if I could marry his daughter, Charlene. And I asked him, I'm sure as a trembling 19-year-old, and uh, he said, yeah, absolutely. We had a great relationship already. And, and then he said, what were you going to do if I said no? And I said, well, I was going to marry her anyway. And he said, that's the right answer. That's the right answer. We choose to follow Jesus no matter what may happen as a result of that decision. We choose to follow Jesus whether others approve or not. It's a decision to love Jesus more than anyone or anything, including our own lives or any relationship. When you first read about these interactions Jesus is having here in Luke 9, you might find yourself thinking, good grief, Jesus, that seems a bit harsh, don't you think? You're not even going to let a guy care for his 
father or say goodbye to his family or have a family meeting, but that's not what's happening here. Each of these people are verbally claiming to want to follow Jesus, but they're all finding reasons to not actually do it. And each of them, when these reasons are finished, you can be assured we'll find new reasons to not follow Jesus. This is no different to the person who says, I want to follow Jesus and get serious about my faith, but we just had a kid and life's a bit crazy right now. It's not a good time. Or the person who says, I want to get serious about my faith, but we just moved and we're settling into our new home and all that goes along with that. It's just not a good time. The kids are in sports and so many different activities. Maybe in the summer, work is really busy right now. There'll always be an excuse for the person who wants to find one. And that's why Jesus just told the man, no one, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. The idea is that following Jesus is a decision you make with your whole life, a task you commit to with everything you've got. And Jesus doesn't say, no one who makes mistakes while his hand is on the plow is fit for the kingdom of God. He knows we're going to make mistakes. We're going to look up from our task of moving toward Jesus plowing through this life and we're going to go, how did I even get in this field? I'm not even in the right field. We're going to make mistakes. But what Jesus expects from us is not perfection. He does, however, expect that we will be completely focused on looking forward to heaven and living our new life in Jesus. That's why Jesus says, anyone who says they want to follow me but is constantly looking back longingly at their old life, their old sin, that person's not fit for the kingdom of God. It's why the Apostle Paul wrote this in his letter to the Philippians. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended. In other words, I haven't arrived. I haven't become like Jesus yet. But one thing I do, then I have the rest of this underlined. Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching toward those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I don't dwell on the past, I don't look back, and I don't get distracted by present things. I simply press on toward Jesus. You will always be held down if you're looking back at your past all the time, and you will miss out on your best future if you're always looking over your shoulder. It's history. You're not going that way. Press on toward Jesus. Press on toward Jesus. Some of you who know your way around the Bible may have heard something familiar in the words Jesus speaks to the last man. No one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. This is a small breadcrumb, a verbal trail, a clue, what the rabbis would call a remes, a hidden mystery, a deeper truth in the text that is supposed to cast our minds back to an event that occurred way back in the Old Testament. It certainly would have come to the mind of the man Jesus was speaking to. One of the greatest prophets in the Bible was a man named Elijah. And Elijah's ministry would be continued and twice as powerful through a man named Elisha. And I have to mention this anytime I can. Elisha performed my favorite miracle in all of scripture when he called bears to attack a group of youths who were threatening him and mocking him for being bald. Glory to God and let that be a warning to the rest of you. <laughs> 1 Kings 19 tells us about the calling of Elisha. It says, So he, Elijah, departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen before him, and he was with the 12th. 
So Elisha was working with 11 other guys. Each of them had a yoke and a plow and two oxen pulling that yoke and plow. Then Elijah passed by him and threw his mantle on him. Symbolically, Elijah was saying, you're my pick. You're the guy who's going to take over my ministry. You're what's next. I choose you. And everybody would have understood that that's what Elijah was doing when he put his mantle on Elisha. His mantle would have been just like a long scarf, but not a lame sort of hipster scarf, like an actual big thing that decorated his clothing and was one of his signature traits. Verse 20, and he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Please let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. Does that sound familiar? And he said to him, go back again. What have I done to you? Which is Elijah's way of basically saying, whatever. Whatever. The vibe here is, I'm Elijah, the greatest and most powerful prophet of God on the planet right now, and I've just chosen you to be my replacement. If you think that saying goodbye to mommy and daddy is more important, if you think they can't just hear the news from someone else, then whatever. So Elisha turned back from him and took a yoke of oxen and slaughtered them and boiled their flesh, using the oxen's equipment, and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he arose and followed Elijah and became his servant. Maybe you're starting to pick up on some of the imagery that Jesus is alluding to. Elisha got the call of the master, a high calling, but he looked back. He went back to his family. He didn't drop everything in that moment. But when he got home, he quickly realized, well, I think I think I might have made a really big mistake. I think that was my big moment. I should have just gone with Elijah. And then what does he do? Well, he makes a fire using the yoke and a barbecue using the oxen. He doesn't even eat it himself. He feeds the people. He pretty much eliminates his old life options and chases after Elijah, pursues Elijah. Later on in 2 Kings 2, Elijah will try to dissuade Elisha from following him. Elijah will say, why don't you stay here in Gilgal? Why don't you stay here in Bethel? Why don't you stay here in Jericho? And every time Elisha responds with, I'm not going anywhere. I'm with you wherever you go. I'm not leaving your side. How does that interaction end? Well, it ends with Elisha asking for a double portion of the anointing that was on Elijah. And you know what? He gets it. Elijah's ministry is marked by seven incredible miracles and Elisha's will be marked by 14 incredible miracles. Elisha gets to be there when a chariot of fire comes down from heaven and Elijah is raptured up to heaven in a whirlwind. He sees it happen. Here's what I believe Jesus is telling the man in Luke 9. If you go back, if you don't follow me, one way or another, the day's going to arrive when you'll wish you had. And if that day comes while you're still alive on this earth, I hope you'll burn your old life options Leave it all behind and follow me. Maybe you once heard the call of God. Maybe you heard the call to simply follow him, or maybe it was a call to step out in faith and be used by him in a specific way. And maybe you blew it. Maybe you went home and went back to your life and got caught up in that. Maybe it was sin that dragged you down, or maybe it was just life, work and family and marriage and kids and a million other distractions. It's never too late to become radical about following Jesus. It doesn't matter how bad you've blown it. It doesn't matter how old you are. You can decide 
today to pursue him, to follow him at all costs and refuse to leave his side. I don't believe that Jesus is being cruel to anyone in Luke 9. He's laying out a challenge and calling them to follow him. He's saying, I don't want you to be confused about what it means to follow me. When you get over this issue, when you realize I'm more important than this thing or that person, I'll be waiting. Come and follow me. Get freed up. Get rid of anything that's slowing you down from following Jesus radically. Side note, I'm not talking about your spouse, just in case you're thinking that. I don't want anyone to think, Pastor Jeff, that was the inspiration I needed to leave my husband. Don't do that. Don't do that. I'm not talking about that. Cling to Jesus. Refuse to leave his side. And if you'll do that, you will be amazed what you will see him do in your life. You'll be amazed by the glimpses of heaven you will get to see on earth. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you don't give up on us. Jesus, thank you that you have invited us to experience life and life to the fullest. I pray that none of us would settle for anything less than everything you have for us. Lord, even those of us who know we're going to heaven, Lord, we don't want to get there and realize, man, God wanted to do so much more. God wanted to show me so much more. And I just didn't have the faith to leave the place of safety and follow him radically. I just didn't have the faith to trust him with everything. Lord, you deserve our faith. You deserve our trust. And we want to honor you with those things. So Lord, I pray you would just illuminate whatever it is that we need to hear this morning. That you would shine a light on those areas where we need to trust you or that call that we need to go back to and start obeying. Help us to trust you, Lord. We love you. In your mighty name we pray. Amen. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says the gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.